Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, Ferguson and consent decrees. So, Richard, back to Ferguson, Missouri this week, something we've been talking about on this show for a couple of years, and some of our longtime listeners may remember that we had a conversation on this show back when the Justice Department released its reports around Ferguson. Now, one of them, the one that uh, everybody probably remembers, was a report essentially exonerating Darren Wilson, the police officer who was involved in the shooting of Michael Brown. But there was another report that was released simultaneously that was highly critical of the broader law enforcement practices in Ferguson. Before we get to how that's playing out right now, can you just freshen our listeners' minds on that report, which I know that you found sort of tendentious? Well, yes. It turns out there were two reports, and the report that exonerated Michael Brown was not done in so many words, but they published the second report, which was a vicious, I think, a condemnation of um, Ferguson relative to other cities. And so the report with respect to Michael Brown was essentially buried by the new news. And the new news essentially pointed out that these guys pleased for profits, that they had real revenue targets that they had to meet, and that there was some abuse in the way in which they gave um, tickets out. Uh, what they didn't say in that report is that that kind of practice is true in virtually every city in the United States. I don't wish to condone it in any of them. But if you're doing a selective prosecution and you're doing it because you think there's some connection to the Brown case, you clearly have done something major wrong. If it turns out that Darren Wilson did nothing wrong, then how could we say that the culture in the Ferguson Police Department and in the Ferguson City Council essentially contributed to his unlawful behavior? You have to reach the opposite condition. Uh, it turns out the guy was well-trained and well-manufactured. So my own view about that was that I thought what they had to do was to try and stop the rhetoric associated with the notion that an unarmed black man was killed by a policeman in cold blood and give a much more accurate account of what went on. And the Justice Department uh, report on that issue was highly commendable. The other report I thought was swashbuckling and never had any baseline or frame of reference or frame of comparison by which you could look at the results. So I thought it was a pretty shabby job by the uh, United States uh, Department of Justice and now we have a new chapter. Yeah, and nevertheless, even though it may have been shabby, the federal government has been threatening since that time to take the city of Ferguson to court over the allegations that were in that report. And Richard, the DOJ and the city of Ferguson announced last month that they had hammered out a tentative consent decree. Now, that's a phrase that may not be familiar to our non-lawyer listeners. So I'll ask you in a moment to talk about the specifics of this arrangement in Ferguson. But quickly, before that, give us the explainer on consent decrees. What are they? Where do they come from? How do they work? Uh, consent decrees are essentially a situation in which both sides wish to avoid the consequences of a judgment one way or another. Uh, so a sen- the consent decree is like a settlement of a case. Uh, but unlike typical cases where they're settled with either no liability or the payment of money, consent decrees tend to have a certain kind of architecture associated with them where they specify things that somebody can and cannot do in great detail. Uh, I actually wrote a book on consent decrees um, some years ago in connection with antitrust cases. 
And what happens is you get these sprawling situations and the government says, we're not going to sue you, but you will agree to divest this division. You will agree to file this report. You will agree to do this other thing. And so they're not voluntary contracts in the sense that each side has the ability to walk away if they don't allow the agreement. They're voluntary only in the sense that all settlements are voluntary, which is that you fear the consequences of a settlement um, less than you fear the consequences of litigation. Now, in this particular case, what happens is you're going to get another one of these structural consent decrees about how you organize the Ferguson police force. And what happens is you didn't have an agreement. You had a tentative agreement, which means that there has to be improvements and approvals on both sides. That's also a common feature of consent decrees. Since they are structural situations, the party who negotiate often negotiate as agents for another body, uh, the mayor's team of negotiation perhaps, as against the city council, uh, so that the whole process has to go through multiple stages and can break down at any one of them. Now, this specific agreement with Ferguson, as it was uh, originally rolled out, this tentative version, there were a number of proposed changes to how they do policing, how their courts operate. There's also some relatively um, elastic language about police salaries. It says in there they have to be among the most competitive relative to comparable cities. There has been an escalating series of cost estimates here beginning at $800,000 a year and going all the way up to $3.7 million per year and that in a city, Richard, that has an annual budget that's only about $14.5 million. So this is potentially a very big financial hit on the city. Is there any limiting principle here as to what the feds can legally get out of them? Um, well, you see, you have to assume that they're suing for civil rights violations. The statutes essentially say that you can get structural remedies. The statutes can say that you can make demands on somebody, but you don't have to pay them. And so if you want to get a frame of reference, it's sort of like the Obamacare situations where we impose mandates upon you and don't pay for them. And this is a common practice in government. What makes it very difficult is in this particular case, it's not just a question of saying you can't do X, at which point you don't have to price it. They're saying that you must do why, at which point you have to price it. And so at this time, there is just always the incentives on both sides to exaggerate their position. The government will always lowball the cost of compliance on the one hand, and the city will sort of highball that price and pretend that it's much larger than it is. Sitting as an outsider, you can tell which of these two things is correct. But in this particular case, you can tell something. Uh, Ferguson is on its knees. It has enormous disruption. It has lost business. Its tax base is shrunk. The government now wants it to demand that it performed things that it could not have done even in the pre-riot stages, the pre-Michael Brown stages. The sensible thing for them to do is say, we really want this thing to happen and what we'll do is we'll make it happen. We're going to give you a budgetary supplement of a million dollars. Now put this thing into place uh, so that we can have it. That in effect would be a bargain. But in this particular case, it's all pain and no gain. And so what the city council said is we can't afford it. And once they say that, well, the government can say, well, let's renegotiate. But their attitude was that they had a quote-unquote tentative deal, which was a deal. And so I think most recently, just minutes ago, they announced that they're going to sue. Right. The day before the podcast that we're recording now, the city council voted unanimously to modify some of the terms of the tentative deal, including that piece about officer salaries. And they also made the argument that they didn't want to bind future elected officials in the city. And Richard, as you referenced just a few moments before we started this, the announcement has come down that the Justice Department is actually going to take them to court 
on this issue. Uh, how much room to run does the city have here? Is there any hope that you can negotiate with the federal government under these circumstances? Well, I mean, first of all, there's the huge financial asymmetry that always exists in this case. You get some guys who are basically bankrupt and on the other side, you have a government which essentially is doing this pour encourager les autres, that is to encourage other people. So what the government sees in this and in virtually every other area where it negotiates consent decrees is a premium. It really lays the lumber onto one guy, the next fellow who's faced with a series of very heavy demands will now capitulate because it knows that the threat is credible. Since the threat is credible, the government doesn't have to spend the money, so it wins both ways. You know, I think the only way that this is actually going to work out is that some foundation somewhere along the line is going to have to come in and agree to actually defend the city. You know, people like the Institute for Justice have done this in a variety of cases, like in Kilo, uh, so that you could equalize the financial burden. Uh, whether that will only enrage the Justice Department officials is something that one can't be sure, but I just don't believe that they have the resources to do it. So what's the point of all of this? Uh, you're going to basically either force them into bankruptcy with a consent decree that they can't fund and therefore will always be in violation, or you're going to bankrupt them by litigation and every dollar you spend on litigation is a dollar that you can't spend on reforming the city. This strikes me as being kind of self-righteous and short-sighted in these circumstances. Ferguson needs a lift. Uh, there are no particular villains in this case, and indeed one of the things that's so striking about this situation is there's no individual official who's singled out for special prosecution. And so I think under these circumstances, if the government wants to use a little bit of a stick, it has to use a lot of the carrot as well. Well, to that point, Richard, sticks and carrots, square this situation in Ferguson with traditional American ideas of federalism. On the one hand, there's the longstanding complaint that the feds take away state and local autonomy with the carrots, that they tie up federal funds and tell the state or local governments do what they want. On the other hand, here, we're talking about sticks. The federal government's going to take you to court if they don't get what they want. Is this this specific example reconcilable with a correct understanding of the Tenth Amendment and the the rightful divisions between federal, state, and local power? Well, if it were only the Tenth Amendment, you would say, in effect, that the federal government has no reserve power to dictate the way in which states organize their internal police forces. And this would have been very important because there are a large number of cases, which I think are completely wrong, which says that the federal government could require, for example, that state governments in their own internal affairs um, honor the provisions of the Social Security Act and the Fair Labor Standards Act and so forth in the way in which they deal with their own employees so long as they are basically put into the same position as private firms subject to these regulations, which means that it's always constitutional because you could always do it under the current constitution to private parties. And I think that this is a terrible mistake that state sovereignty essentially to some that has to mean immunity from the federal government. But Troy, the issue is not just a matter of the 10th Amendment. There's also the nasty little provision known as the 14th Amendment. And this was passed in very large measure in response to the civil rights laws because of a perceived recognition that the states and the way in which they conducted themselves had too much running room against their own citizens. And so, you know, you first define citizens and then you give citizens protections. No state shall make or enforce, notice the last term, you know, any law that abridges the privileges or immunities of the citizens of the several states and of the United United States. Well, you know, you start doing all of this stuff. Now, essentially, the federal government is made a censor over state governments and designed to protect them against these kinds of abridgments. 
It also says Congress can enforce this by appropriate legislation. So the battle, as far as I can see, is that the 14th Amendment certainly says when there are major constitutional violations, particularly associated with either equal protection, due process, or privileges and immunities, um, the federal government can intervene. But the appropriate remedy provision, I think, is important. And so the way I think this case will eventually come out is in very messy terrain, which you're saying this is just a case of overkill relative to the harm that you managed to identify and that you would point A, it's selective prosecution, and B, that even if the selection is permissible, it turns out to be draconian. Whenever you want to order matters of degree in connection with a remedy or a consent decree that's imposed, it's a long and complicated trial and there's no magic bullet, no short circuit. The basic principle of law that I keep stressing more and more as I get older and older, it's easy to define what's right and wrong. It's often very difficult to define given the wrong, what's the right remedy and that's the kind of problem that the government has here i think they're shaky even on the wrong question i think they're on very dicey ground on the remedy question and i truly hope that there'll be some way when this thing actually comes to pass uh, that cooler heads will prevail and they'll work out some kind of a compromise i think it's awfully fast for the government to go this far and find a set of rejections and not even to address them or to explain why it is that they are incorrect, and then to simply lower the boom. This is the uh, current Obama administration, and you know Eric Holder. I'd expect this from because he's basically done a lot of things that I think are very wrong. I didn't know anything about Loretta Lynch, and now it seems to me that there's no change in policy at the federal level, which I regard altogether as very bad news indeed. That was the final question that I was going to put to you. You've anticipated it there, but maybe we can make it a little bit more explicit. That was one of the consistent criticisms of the Obama administration under Eric Holder and now maybe continue to some degree under Loretta Lynch as attorney general. The the Obama Justice Department was overly politicized. That was the phrase you always heard. And of course you always hear a little of that from partisans when the other party controls the executive branch. But how much does that charge resonate with you? How much of the things that conservatives criticize about the Obama Justice Department strikes you as stuff that really is actually exceeding their brief? Well, I – I'm very troubled by the uh, situation and I think it's because of differential stuff. Let me just give you two things. One is you're running this case. It's under investigation. There are potential um, federal implications and serious charges. You don't want to go around and have anybody in the federal government uh, speak with Brown's parents and make it appear as though they agree how terrible a tragedy was that he was killed and that everything was illegal and they're going to set this thing right. You're supposed to be making an independent investigation. You can't have friends and you can't go and side with one person publicly and then in effect make it appear as though Darren Wilson has done something wrong when you haven't established it. This in turn has the very bad effect of skewing the investigation uh, to the point that people will now say, well, we've already committed ourselves that way. We have to go that way. And they did this in a kind of an oblique fashion. They couldn't find any evidence that uh, Wilson had done anything wrong. So what they do is they exaggerate the extent to which Ferguson has deviated from others. Then you look at other cases like, you know, for example, of the 13 billion or so dollar settlement that the holder manages to extract from uh, Chase uh, Manhattan. Now, I guess it's now JP Morgan Chase, a bank on the matter of situation when their own securities report a year or two before never even mentioned Chase as a potential source of misdoing. Uh, and what they were clearly doing is going after somebody whom they didn't like because Jamie Dimon sort of represents to them the incarnation of Wall Street evil and they're going to take after him and hope to force him out in some way, shape or form. And so, you know, you start to see these two cases and after a while, um, you just think that there's something very mis 
misshapen inside the Justice Department. I've seen other situations in which I thought that they've badly misbehaved. Uh, for example, in the way in which they managed to divert funds from private settlements to ACORN and similar organizations. They can't get it through Congress as an appropriation. And then what they do is they tell a bank, a big bank, that, you know, if you basically are going to find you $10 million, uh, it's going to be $12 million really. But if you give $1 million to one of these organizations and various kinds of credits, we'll basically reduce your bills by $2 million. Um, that's simply inappropriate. And I read the letter that Holder's office wrote back to Robert Goodlatte or Bob Goodlatte when he did it. And it was a massive set of evasions and confusions. It was really inexcusable how they ducked the serious problem as to whether or not you can avoid an appropriations constraint by constructing a settlement. And the argument that the government made there was, well, the bank is represented by lawyers, but that's exactly what it is. Good lawyers will always tell their clients to take a dive if they can save a million dollars by giving money to an organization uh, which Congress will not fund. So I am very down on the Obama administration with respect to rule of law and justice stuff. There are many more cases like this, I fear, but they simply have become too much a partisan and they're not enough of a, uh, shall we say, a neutral empire understanding that if you're a prosecutor and have this kind of enormous uh, power, you have to make sure that you exercise your discretion in a principled way and this administration has not done that. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit Hoover.org.